0: Oh, there's already a bit of yellow blood in my, in my veins. I've already had a crazy 18 months here, but it just keeps uh, keep on going. Into the box it goes, it's going to run Fernandez. Yeah! Yeah! Oh my god!
1: got it! Welcome to All In Yellow.
0: The official Norwich City podcast. Tukey! Sensational! Who else?
1: Hello and welcome to the All In Yellow podcast. Now the latest edition of the podcast is a very, very special one as we are delighted to welcome former club director and much celebrated actor, comedian and writer Stephen Fry to the show. My name is Alice Piper. I am one of the hosts of the All In Yellow podcast and I sat down with Stephen Fry to talk about his earliest memories of being an orange fan and, and all the, the years that he's followed the club really. Now Dan, you weren't actually involved in this podcast, were you? You couldn't make that day, but I hope you enjoy listening to it. You, you're a big fan of Stephen. Fry aren't you?
0: I'm incredibly jealous he's an absolute hero of mine and I I just I wish I'd been here but I can't wait to listen to your chat with him.
1: Good he really is a great ambassador for Norwich and I hope you enjoy Dan and our listeners and viewers enjoy the podcast as much as I did doing it. But before we begin our podcast with Stephen Fry, if you want to be notified when we launch a new episode of All in Yellow, make sure you click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. And if you'd like to keep up to date with everything else happening at the club, make sure you follow on all of our social media feeds. We are at Norwich City FC on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. And you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Norwich City Football Club.
0: Right then, Alice, let's do it. It's time to listen to your chat with none other than Stephen Fry.
1: Stephen, it is so good to see you today. Firstly, how good does it feel to be back here, back home at
0: Carra Road? It feels wonderful. I mean, let's be honest, there isn't quite the atmosphere that when I'm usually in this particular room, which is where, when I was a director in particular, one would have one's lunch. You were. Yeah, <laughs> before every match. But it is good to be back
1: here. And how much have you missed sport and football in particular? Obviously, it's it's been on the television, but Mm. but not being able to come to the games. It's such a lifeline for a lot of people, isn't
0: it? It really is. And it's an extraordinary thing how important sport has been in as much as it's been able to resuscitate itself. And, and, you know, uh, I think at first, for pretty obvious reasons, golf and snooker were easy, relatively easy to, to, to get in front of the public and darts and so on but football much harder because it just involves more people, so many more people and all that travelling. And, and uh, you know, a whole part of football is the away game and the, against the home game and, you know, the, the sense of different fans being at your ground and your fans going off to another ground. You know, that's a big part of football, much more than it is a part of uh, cricket or darts, obviously, or, or or golf or anything like that. that. The whole tribal nature of the game is so so stitched into its very fabric that uh, although you can have you know the playing of a game it it, it needs a lot more and it, you know i think you get a sense that everyone's still feeling their way it was quite noticeable with the internationals that they felt dead yeah do you remember yeah. that iceland game i mean that was just like
1: yeah fifth. I know yeah. it is is completely different, isn't it, yeah. for, for everyone? But I, I just want to take you back to 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 your first first games, really, coming and visiting, mm. being, visiting Norwich. You obviously grew up just down the road at Reefham. Tell us about how you came to be a Norwich City fan.
0: Well, it, it's a no-brainer if you grow up in Norfolk because there's only one club, really. I'm sure the uh, fans of the Kings Lynn Linnets will <laughs> scream in disbelief that I could say such a treacherous thing. But to be honest, yes, I mean it, it, it's it's a Norwich area the huge catchment area this big county and so therefore you just got used to old boys in the street in the countryside when I was a tiny boy uh just say do you see the game last night or whatever <laughs> and and that could only mean Norwich whereas if you heard it wasn't going to be Ipswich <laughs> no, exactly and if you're in London it could mean anything
1: yeah um
0: but uh, so it, it, it just became a, a part of Part of the county, like the Broads and the and the coast, and you know it was just, you know, if you come from Norfolk, there's Norwich City. Yeah. Um, and I, I went to the first one. Um, a farmer friend. Uh, I'd done as you do when you're a kid. You know, you in the countryside, you you work on the harvest, or you used to when they actually were quite labour intensive things. You'd help with the baling or something. Um, <laughs> I know the picture of me doing that. Is kind of I like the picture. <laughs> well, of course, being the kind of child I was, I was sneezing all the time because I was always allergic to something oh, in, in okay. nature. But uh, he said you would come of a game, you know. So, so I came, and that was still in the days of terraces, and it was a remarkable yeah. feeling. Uh, it was, well, it you know anybody who remembers their first their first game, their first match knows that. That thing, that that noise, the flow of people through the turnstile, the sudden feeling that you're a part of this rite of passage, that you're becoming, you know, you're becoming a fan now. You you, you belong here. And you're scared at first even to open your mouth in case you say the wrong thing. (laughs) Oh, well done. No, that that was was terrible. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah, you you feel really, oh, I've said the wrong thing. And, of course, also... um, As I became a a bit older, I got quite scared of going because it was at the height of uh, the era of football, hooliganism and violence of the worst kind. Particularly, I remember um, Manchester United matches. uh, When United came to Norwich, there was always violence in Prince Wales Road and places like that and and around the station, you know, the bits sort of leaking out from from Carrow Road. And and, and there was, you know, hear these stories about uh, how... You know, they'd find, a, a, especially a young fan, and drag him around a corner and cut his ear off or something. Wow. You know, all these urban myths. I mean, yeah, of course, silly, really. And uh, I never actually experienced anything like that, to be honest. But, but you always, you know, you always felt, especially, and this is where we have to get into the very English thing. People will know from my voice, and I suppose there's no point hiding it, that I, I, I went to a, a, a private school, I, what we call a public school, and uh, it, it didn't even play football. Mm. We played rugby in in, in in that period, and and um, uh, there was there's this class thing that. Um, it, so I remember when I became uh, uh, you know a, a director of Norwich City, I was on the board, and uh, people said, "But you know, you're not a football type of person." Uh, just as what is I, a football type? I of know, person? I know, I love darts as well, and people go, "You can't like darts; it's yeah. a working class game." I think well. How is Britain ever going to sort itself out if yeah. you're kind of doing this ridiculous division amongst to the, the circumstances of someone's birth determining what sports they're allowed to yeah. like? I mean, that's mad and and sad, frankly. Yeah. Uh, but I know, I know that there is, especially in London, for example, there's a lot of tension about uh, rich people being able to afford to go to Chelsea games. It's all you know, BBC executives and that kind of thing. Where do the real fans get a chance when the ticket prices are this high and so you know there there is always underlying british life this Slight embarrassment and unease about yeah. class and who you are. I mean, even you know, I mean, you, you know, as a woman, that the, the whole issue of being a woman and in, in, in going to football matches was twenty years ago was jolly difficult. Yeah, it really was. Do you
1: think we're heading in the right direction? Oh goodness, though? yes.
0: I mean, you know, the, frankly, the best, the best commentators and analysts of the game of women <laughs> yes. are at the moment. It seems. <laughs> Some of them it? Are, yeah. yeah. And and uh, and the women's game itself is improving yeah. and really coming on. And I, you know, it's always at best three steps forward one step back sometimes two steps forward one step back with progress in these areas but but I think um I think we are you know much better place than, than
1: we were yeah here. and you talked about being on the board back in 2010 mm. you were on the board for, for just over five years yeah. how did that differ from being a fan
0: well of course it differed in ways that uh, were part of the reason why we we all agreed that it would probably be a good idea if I didn't bother to be on the board.
1: (laughs) We didn't all agree that.
0: (laughs) Well I couldn't turn up to the to the board meetings so often. I was spending a lot of time in America uh, during that period and so for most board meetings I couldn't be there. When I was there If I saw a spreadsheet, I would go pale and gasp and clutch at my throat and faint because (laughs) Stevens were not put on this world to examine (laughs) spreadsheets. I just don't, I just, you know, it's pathetic of me and I'm sure if I concentrated and worked hard, I could understand profit and loss. (laughs) You've got so much other things on your mind all the time. I mean, uh, as Clint Eastwood says in Magnum Force, you know, a man's got to know his limitations. (laughs) And and, and as far as my limitations are concerned, I'm not... business oriented sort of person. So there was lots of talk, incredibly important talk for the future of the club about money, financing, investment, property, land, you know, all those things. Um, and football, quite rightly, I was not there to discuss whether or not, you know, we should uh, what, what we should have a flat back four or whatever. That was you know, not my job either. So um, I saw it as much more my job to try and be a public face of the club where possible, and use my Twitter yeah. um, uh, followers and so on, and to uh, to be able to spread news of this, uh, you know, new initiative or whatever it might be that mm. that um, Nick Ferrari, who was doing the, the, the press and publicity at the time, would ask me to do, and and I'm very happy to do that. Um, and uh, you know, frankly, I've, I'm on a few boards of things. The, 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 Royal Academy in London and uh, the Criterion Theatre in the West End, for example. And uh, in recent uh, times we've had to do a lot of Zoom board meetings. And that I, I have this theory about British public life, that while the people on the top are very often absolute pranets, I mean, just awful, ridiculous, not anything to do with their politics particularly, but just the people in the public eye who, who are the top figures are very often extremely annoying, extremely lazy, extremely duplicitous. But there is a a type of person at the second and third tier who get on with running things, who sacrifice enormous amounts of their time to make things right, who are masters of detail, who 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 stay up reading documents to make sure they understand what's going on, who do the due diligence type things, Who who without whom this country would never exist. And you see that in football clubs. I'm certainly not saying that uh, the public faces of uh, Norwich City were like that, because <laughs> Delia and Michael and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and Ed Balls and all, all the other figures we've had, and we've been incredibly lucky. But, but it's certainly true in politics, you know, and in the uh, health service and so on. You know, you just see there are people who get on with it and yeah. without... Being noticed, they do extraordinary work, and so I, I knew that uh, when it came to uh, Norwich City, because I just couldn't come to the uh, to the board meetings, uh, there was not much point me. Uh, really staying on in that capacity, but that that I'm always happy to do anything I'm asked to do in terms of publicity or help or, you know, some video or something for some new charitable or other um, initiative that the club is undergoing. I'm, you know, very, very pleased to do that. And of course, it is very different in terms of the football because naturally you become aware when the club isn't doing well of the pressures that start to build up on the chair and the board and uh, on the directors of football and the, and of course the manager when the club isn't doing well and that's always been the case I mean ever since I can remember that was true when Arthur South was the chairman and you know yeah. uh, uh, all the way back to the Bond days and, and before and Ron Saunders and mm-hmm. others you know there would be demonstrations outside this ground and people saying it got to go and Keith yeah. Skipper would be writing articles about <laughs> it and, you know that's uh, you know that's always been the case and um, it's a it's one of the peculiar and fascinating things about about football that it's it's a business, not a democracy, 100%. and yet spiritually it is a democracy. Spiritually, the club does belong to the fans and the people of the area, 100%. even though it doesn't technically or in fiduciary senses and all the financial stuff. And we know about the American model. We know uh, how American franchise. Uh, business uh, models have begun to creep over here. And, and we know that, uh, you know, even the very nature of a club's roots are irrelevant to the business model in America. So the famous example was in 1957, when the Brooklyn Dodgers, the great Dodgers, the one of the great baseball teams, uh, you know, who were part of Brooklyn in the way that the Brooklyn Bridge is part of Brooklyn, they were just bought and taken mm-hmm not just taken out of Brooklyn, they were taken to Los Angeles, 3,000 miles from their home, and they're now the LA Dodgers. Yeah. And um, can you imagine that happening? Well, it sort of happened with uh, Wimbledon, you could argue, of course, going off to become MK Dons. And so, you know, it it is always possible that, uh, but generally speaking, almost all football lovers have a very strong sense of the roots of their club and the meaning of their club and how the fans are a part of it. Yeah. And so there's a, it's a very uneasy kind of thing. When it works, it's it, the happiness when a club is successful. But the speed, that's the thing. The speed with which a club can go from the very heights to the very depths. I mean, look at Wigan. Yeah,
1: yeah, I yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. Horrible to see. Isn't it? Yeah.
0: really and, and Wimbledon indeed was a good example of that that I mentioned um, so you, you've you always got to be aware that uh, disaster is around the corner in
1: yeah, and the running of the club is everything and you can't yeah. lose sight of what it, what it means yeah. to the fans but we can't help but notice that when you joined the board we were in
0: League One and then by the time <laughs> you
1: left we were in the Premier League, you've got to thank take some for credit the, for that I, haven't thank you? Thank
0: you for that very much, <laughs> I'm glad somebody has finally come out and said it
1: We all noted it, but, but what is your relationship like with, with Delia and Michael because obviously you touched on it there, they've done so much yeah. for the club they've had a, a long relationship with the club and still do what do yeah. you make of the work well done? it's
0: very warm i mean i i i should hope every every norwich fan knows this by now if it isn't apparent that their, their love for, for for the club is absolutely unconditional and pure and intense and real and as great as any love as any fan can have for a club. It is absolutely genuine. They're certainly not in it to make money. Yeah. <laughs> that much is clear. They're not in it for power or kudos. They go to every game. And uh, yes, they're fortunate enough sometimes to be able to go by plane rather than by mm-hmm. by train or, or, or it's bus. It's a little bit quicker. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, the fact is they are devoted yeah. and they have warm relations with everyone through the club, in, you know, everyone who works at Carroll Road knows Delia and Michael, and knows how much they put into it. And indeed, there, there, the affection that is and respect that is felt from the from the, the the managers and I mean, I sat at this very table, literally, or if it's not the same, <laughs> t- in this very place um, with Delia and Michael and Arsene Wenger, just a name oh, drop wow. uh, for for, for the, the Arsenal had the very last game of the season a couple of years yes. ago, if you remember, yeah. and. Um, and uh, D- Delia and Michael went off to, to take a phone call or something and Arsene yeah. leant forward to me and said, you know how much, how lucky you are to have a, people like that to run your club. Oh, you know? wow. Said, you know, everybody, everybody in football looks at Norwich and says, oh, that is what you need. You need people like that. Wow, and that's coming and, from yeah, Arsene Danga. And he really meant it and you could see it. It was so touching and, and uh, Bobby Robson was, big big friend and very tight with the and and uh, was you know he 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 said the same you know you, yeah. you just remember how lucky you are to have yeah because they don't interfere. They, they know their place as far as football is concerned. I and mean, if you compare it to Rupert Murdoch buying the Times and yeah. the Sun, he interfered straight away <laughs> and told his editor what to write, which you never do yeah. any more than the owner of a club tells tells the manager how to pick the team.
1: And is, is that how you keep the family and the community feel? Because when you talk about Norwich City, a lot of fans, as you say, Arsene Wenger there, he was even yeah. quoting the job that they've done. But a lot of fans of other teams look at what the Delia and Michael do and, and do comment on how you keep the the family yeah. feel is it, is it that important I
0: think it is because you know it's people don't often comment on this but there's something deeply unpretentious about Delia and Michael they don't pretend to be what they aren't they they present exactly what they are which is just they love it you know they don't Pretend to be experts, Dina will always say, Oh, what's that player's name again? You know, and you're going, Dina, you come to every single match. <laughs> but but you know, she'll just get excited. Who is that? You know? Yeah. And and then she'll, Oh, that's him. Oh, he's of my favourite. Oh, I love him. <laughs> oh uh, what, what what was wrong with that? And Michael will <laughs> whisper to her, <laughs> it was offside. Oh, so, okay, you what's know, it? She needs better glasses. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. She's just not in any way being Pretentious or pretending to be, you know, pretending to be anything that she isn't, and and that communicates enormously because her love of the football is all about the atmosphere and the feeling and the fun and 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 the pleasure of getting behind the team and and of course no one has ever got behind a team more famously than than Delia. Let's be having you. (laughs) Never forget. There's a lot, you know, that worries people in terms of. the way the game is going financially and internationally and uh, the way, uh, you know, elite clubs are moving away from the heartlands of, of the game, as it were. And we all have views about that. And we all worry about there being, a, you know, a special kind of Champions League type thing that will uh, hive off the top teams from the premiership and it'll become even more exclusive and worrying and all those things and there's the financial pressure on the smaller clubs and some of the ancient clubs we look at what happened to Bolton you know it's it's a there's a lot and Barry and there's a lot of sad things going on in football but at, at its heart there is the game and we're worried about var and uh, new handball rules and all that you know (laughs) so there's always something to, to to worry about but at its heart there is this sense of how it binds a community together and the community can be a literal community in the sense of norwich and norfolk a very clear geographical catchment area but it's also the community of fans which is all over the world you know there's a there's a pub on the upper west side of of, uh, of Manhattan, where, where which is the the um, the Manhattan Canaries meet every uh, wow. uh, to, to watch games, and so you know, the, and there's uh, there's a there's a group in LA that I've seen as well. So, uh, okay. so you know, it's not like Manchester United or anything, but there are still you know, so it, it, there is this sense of uh, uh, of being a Norwich fan, uh, having um, marking you out as part of a particular tribe, and that's true of all clubs, of course. So um, that side of things. Uh, is is what we hold on to, um, and the game itself is so important. But the game is bound up in the nature of clubs, um, and what I said about the England Ireland, uh, the England Iceland match, for example, being dead. Mm. I'm still, I still support England when when there's a you know, what, but it wasn't an important match. It wasn't as important as you know Norwich versus Brentford.
1: Yes, yeah. In,
0: in an average week. Yeah, it just wasn't. Didn't even have that intensity it was, about it. Even though it was two countries. Yeah, and so without without a crowd and being one of the early sort of COVID uh, biosecure matches, you, you thought, actually, yes, we call football the beautiful game, and of course it is, but its beauty is underpinned by by what's at stake.
1: But there's there's beauty in other ways as well. You talk about the reach and the platform. Just want to touch on the the job that Marcus Rashford has done wow. off the pitch. I mean, yeah. what an example he is yeah. he is displaying. What what do you make of that?
0: Well, at the time of talking, of course, he is he's being uh, without him. I'm sure meaning to be exactly that. He's being a thorn in the government's side because they have a different policy to his very clear one. And I think he, he's he's an example of of how an intelligent and thoughtful. Uh, player can, as the word goes, leverage mm. his position to do remarkable good. Yeah. Um, and we've seen that with the Black Lives Matter campaign. And uh, I know some people get very pissed off about that and go, no, we should stay out of it. But it's nonsense, you know. It, it is One of the glories of sport is that it has demonstrated the importance of how humans come together. And, um, you know, it has been long been a way out of poverty for people of all races and backgrounds. But notably, uh, we able to look at race relations in Britain through the lens of football and other sports. And, and, and uh, for anyone to pretend that, uh, you know, football shouldn't have a role in improving all aspects of our society and using its power and influence, then they they misunderstand how society works I think and and what Marcus rashford I don't know him but you know I'm deeply impressed by his commitment and his you know his modesty he's not being all boastful about it he's just making a very simple point extremely well and putting his um you know, putting his effort and his hours where, where his mouth is and shaming a lot of us and certainly a lot of politicians.
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of people, every, every fan is, is very proud of, of the work he's doing. Yeah. Um, I just want to touch on the inclusivity sort of element of mm. football and sport in itself, really. We've seen um, initiatives like the Kick It Out campaign, yeah. Rainbow Laces, Laces as well. Um, where, where do you think we're going with the inclusivity in football and how much further have we got still to go?
0: Well, um, uh, I hope someone was reminding me today. It's 800 premier players, is it? And uh, um, one of those is going to be gay, for example. Uh, I mean, at least, know.
1: absolutely, <laughs> exactly. yeah. Exactly.
0: Uh, and the the day is yet to come when any uh, any LGBT male player, at least, has 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 been able to feel strong enough to come out. And Why do
1: you think they haven't yet?
0: I I think it's because being the first is. Extremely difficult, it, or it, it would seem it. Um, I've actually seen, funnily enough, in my capacity as I have a small production company for films and things, and I've seen a couple of screenplays that have been sent over the past five years, which are both played around with the same idea: being dramas, uh, one a comedy drama and one a more straight drama, as it were, straight drama about about a, a gay Premiership footballer yeah. deciding to come out, and um, it's. It's a fascinating um, thing because these scripts, you know, address exactly that question you've asked. Why, why, why is it seem so difficult? But, you know, it's not difficult in acting, we say. Yet when I started acting, there were no out actors. Ian McKellen wasn't out really? when I had started. Yeah. Um, there, there was no one in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were open secrets. And it that's wasn't not that long ago. No. And when Rock Hudson died of AIDS, it was like this incredible earth shattering. Yeah. My goodness. But it made a big difference. And then people like Ian McKellen um, uh, made it easier for others. And so now there are you know, nobody blinks and eyelid. Yeah. They, they'd think it weird if somebody did. I mean, they'd feel sorry for somebody who made a fuss about it. They'd go, are well, you all right? Do, do you want a glass of water? <laughs> but, but in sport, it, it, it's still different. I think it will change. And in five years' time, you'll ask me that, and you'll go, gosh, do you remember that time when there was still no one out and it was still a big issue? Or maybe seven years' time, because it's always a little more than you hope it might be. Um, but I think one of the things, and I've been talking about this a lot with uh, with cricket, where I have a, a role in the MCC Foundation uh, uh, where where we address um, issues of mental health a lot. And, and yeah. um, One of the things you have to remember is that to be a great sporting athlete you need to train your body obviously you need to train your body generally to be extremely fit and to have all the oxygen and all the things that the sports scientists will tell you you need and you need to train in the specific techniques of your discipline whether it's running or hurdling or or football or cricket or whatever it is you, you obviously need to train but it's quite understood now that you also need to train your mind. That sports psychology is a huge part of sport, particularly and originally, of course, with individual sports—golf, uh, snooker, you know, tennis, so on—where it's so apparent that the individual mind can stop the it's athlete so playing properly. That the mind gets in the way yeah. of all that technique because, you know, they're all brilliant at hitting the ball and can do things when relaxed and in you know like a snooker player getting a one four seven break in practice just like that you know but the mind gets in the way well now we sort of understand that but we also have to understand that training the mind is not just training the mind to be relaxed and in the zone or whatever a phrase you want to use for sport but also for it to be happy in life so that you can train better so that you order your time better, so that things like alcohol and gambling are not tempting you because there's something upsetting you. You've got anxieties, you've got fears, and those fears can be, event fears of failure, fears of how you look, fears about your relationships, fears of gender, all kinds of fears. We all have them. I've never met a human being who isn't inside a bit of a marshmallow, a bit scared, uh, uh, you know, frightened that they'll be found out about something. We're all like that. I'm as like that as anybody. I I feel more like that than everybody, but that's a kind of vanity that's silly. And so I think what will happen more is that just as computers and uh, uh, you know biometric testing and the monitoring of p- how much people are running on the fit pitch and all these new things that have come into sport that have improved and given a tiny edge so a holistic way of looking at the mind and mindfulness and you know addressing issues of masculinity fears and so on all of those things and anxieties and phobias all of these will be as much a part of making a better footballer or a you know better rugby player or whatever it is as the other exercises they do so I think that's what it is sport each year needs to find new a new edge just like business does you know a quarter of a percent in that direction can just if you just as a quarter of a second can give lewis hamilton that yeah. that that lap you know so um so it is that sport will envelop more the whole person yeah uh, I and mean, you don't have to get kind of all new agey about it it is ultimately it will be for financial gain it will be because y- it will increase the number of wins yeah if you have players who you know the old type of toxic masculine figure who whose banter in the dressing room is cruel and mean to young new players and who, who bullies and uh, the managers who bully and all that that atmosphere there and that atmosphere amongst fans of, of, of homophobia and, and racist shouting it all decreases the confidence and the ability of players to play properly so in the end it's a Although it, it has its moral reasons for being the right thing to do, it also has its just plain sporting reasons yeah. for being the right thing.
1: There can thing only to do. be pure benefits yeah. from everyone That's being it. themselves and fe- feeling included as well. And Crowd yeah. Canaries have done a lot of work. They've, um, you know, they've really yeah. shown that everyone should feel welcome at football, both at Absolutely. home and away. Yeah. And what do you make of the work they've done?
0: I think it's brilliant. I think we've taken the deep tragedy behind the life of Justin Fashionu, yeah. um, and we have rather than just kind of burying it or being embarrassed by it we've tried to learn by it we've all tried to understand the pain and the misery and the upset that can go into being a gay football fan and uh, being bullied at school for being gay or for being a gay footballer like Justin and 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 just having your life ruined. Yeah. Um, and so the Rainbow Laces and the and the Proud Canaries and 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 the connection that the club has made with with LGBT life and uh, and and self confidence has been really important. And of course, as a gay man myself, I've been particularly pleased to see it. But you know, it's important in all directions. It's important in in all inclusivity and in, in, including families and including women, including people from racial minorities to feel that they're. As much part of Norwich as anything else, I think it's improved hugely in Norfolk. But I call it the the swimming pool problem, and you would never dive into a swimming pool that had a turd in it, mm-hmm. even if someone's to say, "But ninety nine percent of the water is crystal clear. There's only one little turd in it." Interesting go, analogy. Yeah, but that turd <laughs> ruins the whole pool.
1: Yes, and 100%. unfortunately,
0: you know, in a crowd, one cry, yeah. one one horrible. Racist cry or grunt or banana skin or you know all these awful yep. things that can happen. Only that is enough to be the turd in the
1: swimming pool yep. yep. that
0: ruins it all. Yeah. And and that that is that is the problem. It, it's it's great that most people and of course you you know bung a um, uh, you know bung an apple in the air and it will fall down and hit the head of a decent person. I've yep. always believed that. I, I really do have the highest opinion of my fellow human. Um, you know. I, I, that nonsense about you know if you collapse in the street people walk past i you know it's it, you, you collapse in the street people will hurry up. They'll, they'll elbow each other out of the way so <laughs> way- i was one, i trained as a nurse come on well, <laughs> done. hot sweet tea not sweet you might be diabetic come on you know people would cluster around yeah. to be helpful um and uh, of course there are wicked people in the world there is such a thing as evil there is nastiness but really we we have to i think we have to assume that people are good. And yes. we, 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 you know, you can't legislate for the worst aspects of society. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and I think you're rewarded by doing that.
1: Yeah, and, there's and, a lot to champion by, by human nature and, yeah. and, and the good elements of it, definitely. Um, I just want to touch um, on Justin Fashner. You talked about him a, a little yeah. while ago. So it took 30 years almost before he was inducted into the National Hall of Fame. Yeah. Why did it take so long for him to receive that recognition?
0: Interesting question. I mean, I I don't think I'm saying anything unusual. Um, sorry, I spoke off mic there a bit, didn't I? I don't think <laughs> I'm I'm saying anything unusual if, if I kind of repeat the the kind of Will Carling view about how sports are run by you know pretty old farts and pretty you know that, that so many administrators in sport have been pretty pretty stuck in the mud when it comes to things or and and who knows somebody may have said oh I was he that good a footballer or whatever you know and and or just find some some reason to or or embarrassment who knows um but I'm I'm pretty much of the uh, celebrate when the lost lamb is found rather than uh, rather than mourn for how long it was lost, if you sort of yes. mean. I'm, I'm really happy that it's happened and happy that more people now know his name than maybe did 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, that it, 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 it's a, it's an extraordinary story, the, the, the story of the brothers and of, of their uh, arrival into the world of football, and then the the, the journey of, of Justin. It is a, a sad and a, a story, but a very uh, important one for everyone to know about, I think. And I think it's great that Norwich has embraced it. Um, yeah
1: yeah it's a story that definitely needs to be told doesn't it yeah. um, a story also that I want to delve into is um, your education you've obviously had long links here in Norwich in Norfolk um, am I right in thinking well, you went to Norwich City College before going to Cambridge how, how, how did that all unfold
0: it was very extraordinary I had a, I had a terrible childhood I mean in terms of behaviour and everything. <laughs> uh, I was sent away to a prep school in Gloucestershire which is about 200 miles from yeah. Norfolk so it was um, do you know in the old days I say the old days in the night. Like in the eighties and nineties, when when I was asked this question and I had to explain to people what my childhood was like, it was quite difficult to to get across the sense of it. But thank goodness for J.K. Rowling, you can just say, "Well." I used to as at the age of 7 get on the Hogwarts Express from Paddington to my prep school. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I was at school in my prep school like that. <laughs> and I was in that house and you know and, yeah. and they go oh, I understand how that works now, because <laughs> I read Harry Potter whereas before Harry Potter the British public school system was a closed book yeah, to everybody.
1: Yeah, no, but
0: <clears throat> I got expelled from my big school my actual public school when, when I was about 15 and a half, 16. And, and uh, then I went to a college in Kings Lynn mm-hmm. because my parents lived in the countryside in near Reefham, as you mentioned. Yes. That for the catchment area for that, for some reason was Kings Lynn rather than Norwich, although Norwich was nearer. Okay, and that so makes I sense. Went, <laughs> so I went to Norcat and then I left that. Oh, and i also went to um, the Paston School in yes, North Walsham. Yes, you did, yes. Uh, and that was, I played hooky from that so often I would just go into a cafe in Aylesham and play um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on play pinball all the time, <laughs> and then there was an embarrassment with credit cards that we needn't go into too much we detail about. But it involved me ending up in a prison in the West Country for a okay. while, and then I was finally released on probation. Okay. And my parents, by this time, again, well, darling, we've tried five, or <laughs> six different schools, and it's not really working. I said, No, I'm, I'm sorted now. When I was in prison, I thought, This is it. This is my last chance. Got it out of your system. I've got it out of my system, and always I loved. Learning, I loved knowledge, I loved, I was an academic. I was a natural academic. Yeah. Despite my refusal to concentrate at school, it was partly because i was cursed and blessed with an extraordinary memory. So I never had to revise or, or, or study anything because I just knew it, I just absorbed information. And so I got very bored by yeah. people who didn't know things because I thought, oh, God, you know, and, and it was awful, you know. Um, sure. but, but I I'd never really worked for that reason because it all came so easily to me. But in prison, I started to read really positively. And then, so I said to my parents, I'm to, I want to go to Cambridge. And they said, well, <laughs> you've, you've muck, mucked up any chance to get in the A-levels. And I said, well, there's Norwich City College. And they said, well, you choose to go yourself. So I found out that they had, it literally, it was their last day of registration. Um, and so I, I went to Norwich on the, on the little coach from Reefham and queued up and there was a little twinkly man there and he said yes and i said i'd like to do a levels they said well what and i said well in the humanities he said, which ones i said i'd like to do english french history and history of art wow. um and he said uh, you do history of art history is full up and english is full up i said no i've got to do english because i'm going on to cambridge to do to do English. The he said, determination. What? He said, what do you mean you're going on to Cambridge? He said, well, I said, well, I'm, that's, what, that's my, what I want to do. He said, well, you have to do the special Oxbridge exam if you do that, we don't do that here. I said, no, listen, if you let me do English and French and the history of art, I will I will take out papers from the library and, and make myself do the Cambridge entrance and I'll get a scholarship and you'll be proud of me. <gasps> Amazing. And he looked at me for what seemed like a, an hour, but of course it was <laughs> 30 seconds. And then he said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but all right. And so wow. I, Peter Butler, his name was, and I owe him everything to Amazing. this day. Amazing. And that's sort of what happened, is I, I got sort of a few jobs um, to keep myself busy in Bonds of Norwich, for yep. example.
1: John Lewis knows. Uh, uh, now. Now John <laughs>
0: Lewis. And um, and I would go most days to Just John's Delicatique, which was oh, this nice. studenty, bohemian kind of coffee bar, and chat to people. and And I'd go to Norwich Library, and there were the past papers for getting into. Uh, uh, Cambridge and I would uh, go through them and try and answer them and then I uh, offered to pay one of the teachers at the City College to uh, invigilate me for the exam and he was so touched by this he said I'll do it for free oh, so okay. so I would just be uh, on my own and fortunately I did get a scholarship and go to Cambridge and then everything turned around because because um, my first week i think i met this wonderful girl uh who was an amazing actress and we became best friends and she encouraged me to do acting her name was emma thompson oh wow whatever, whatever happened to her and um <laughs> do you
1: still stay in contact now yes very
0: much with uh, yeah, dame emma as she now is yeah. and um so uh and then i met hugh Laurie, and um and started doing comedy and things like that and so it just uh i was very very fortunate to 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 to, to uh to have been just young enough still. Of course, Cambridge didn't know that in my first year there, I was still on probation.
1: Oh, wow, well, <laughs> you got away with that. <laughs> yeah, and on the
0: last day of my probation, I told all my friends that I was now alone. They knew. And um, so, and I told one of my tutors, I said, uh, I thought I'd tell you now, Dr. Holland. I said, um, yesterday, I went off probation. He said, well, uh, who put you on probation? Thinking that some some teacher, you know, some lecturer at the university had put me on a kind of yeah. academic probation. I said, no, no, a real criminal probation. <gasps> he said, what? He said, well, why didn't we know that? And I said, well, fortunately, when I applied, you never asked. <laughs> there so you knew, go. It's not have, even that
1: you held it back. <laughs> I didn't have
0: to lie, exactly. <laughs>
1: no, wow, I love that. And, and how did your career then unfold? How did you know what you wanted to do? You've achieved so much so far. How did you know which way to go? well,
0: I didn't to be honest i um I thought having sowed uh, it's an old joke of Churchill's I think is um, young men sow wild oats and <laughs> old men grow sage um but I think uh having sowed so many wild oats, I honestly thought i would i would stay at cambridge uh i was Passion, particularly the thing I was best at, was Shakespeare, um, and and I always did, got incredibly high marks for the for the Shakespeare. I just loved writing about him, I loved talking about him, thinking about him, um, and I thought I would stay on uh, at, at my college and uh, get a doctorate and become an academic and quietly grow tweed in a corner somewhere. <laughs> um, and uh, it, what happened was in my last, uh, in my second year, I wrote a play. Um, and it went to Edinburgh and I performed in it as well and and it won this thing called a Scotsman's Fringe First which is what they used to give out for for plays and Emma uh, was up there, Emma Thompson was up and she took Hugh Laurie to go and see it and I, I hadn't met Hugh uh, because Hugh was going to be the, the president of the Footlights in the next year and he he had already said to her he wanted someone to write comedy with, and he, he, and, and and she had said, to me, well, you've got to see my friend Stephen's play because um, uh, it's it's funny and it, it, he's in it as well. And so I met Hugh and he went hello, uh, <laughs> and I said hello, and and uh, then uh, the next term, which was the beginning of our last year, we started writing together, and um, it, it just never stopped. It, it it we just hit it off so it, it was I always describe it as a as a non erotic love story. I mean, it was a a comedy love story. We just clicked in the most extraordinary way. And, we were, and I brought on a friend of mine, Tony Slattery, who had uh, done plays with things. I brought him into the Footlights as well. So there was Emma and me and Hugh and uh, Tony and, um, and, and a couple of other wonderful people, Paul Sheer and Penny, two The names were. And, um, and we went to Edinburgh and, and we, we, our show was, seemed to do really well. It got tremendous reviews and, and the BBC said they wanted to make a programme of it. And some people from uh, Granada Television came around to see it as well. And they came to see us afterwards and asked if we wanted to do a series. Uh, um, And they had got a couple of bright, rising talents from who were not at Cambridge, because it was embarrassing that we were all at Cambridge, (laughs) you know, this whole bloody Oxbridge Mafia thing. And so they got someone from who graduated from Glasgow Art School, and someone from Manchester, whose names were Robbie Coltrane and Ben Elton. And they wanted to do a series with us and them, so we did this series. But while we were still at Edinburgh, one night, we were doing this performance, and we were bowing at the end, and there was big cheers and everything, but the cheers were particularly extraordinary. I mean, they went mad. And we were thinking, what's going on? And then we noticed there was someone coming on behind us from backstage. Um, um, Hello, um, oh, it was Rowan Atkinson, Don't and uh, we thought, what the, he was famous by then because not the Nine O'Clock News had just, yes, you know, yeah. was on, and he was the kind of standout figure from it, really. Um, I just um, um I say one or two words, um, <laughs> and so and he had been asked to give us. We'd won this award. It was the first year it was ever given. It was called the Perrier Award for best comedy on the Fringe. Yeah. Uh, which involved doing a show in London as well. And then the next night, an Australian promoter came and said, I wanna take you guys around Australia. Mm -hmm. So within this magical two weeks of Edinburgh, we got the BBC doing our show, uh, a a Granada series for ITV, and a a, a, a performance in the West End and a a Mm -hmm. tour of Australia. I mean, I I know how mad it sounds. And, you know, I can't imagine how young people starting out in comedy now would listen to that and think, you jammy, it's It's no question. We were so lucky to be at that period of, and, and, you know, I also think if I hadn't had that period of going to, prison and being expelled from schools I would have gone to Cambridge, Cambridge at uh, an, an earlier age I mean uh,
1: so timing was everything first, yeah then. my first
0: I did all my O levels you see when I was 14 and I would have done all my A levels when I was 16 and I would have gone to university at 17 even with a gap year yeah. I was being 17 so, as it was, I was 20 because i had had everything else. So, I coincided with Emma and Hugh. So, I was very fortunate. Perfectly.
1: Where did you find time to to keep supporting Norwich then, while all <laughs> this was going on? And <laughs> I hope what? you took your scarf to Australia as well.
0: <laughs> it, it is obviously difficult when you're starting out and you're young, especially in those days when there was no social media, no uh, phones, you either you either went to the matches or you didn't. And the the chance of Norwich having a match on television was pretty rare. I mean, through the 80s, there were those extraordinary ones. Bayern Munich springs to mind. Oh, yes, Jeremy Um, Goss. The (laughs) Jeremy Goss goal, exactly. And I remember watching that in the Groucho Club. Nice, very nice. (laughs) And that was an extraordinary thing. I got so drunk after
1: that. Good. I think probably most Norwich fans did, yeah. Yeah. Is that your favourite memory then, being a Norwich sport?
0: In some ways it is. And, of course, it was every as you know every fan thinks it's typical for any piece of good luck to be followed by a piece of terrible luck Mm -hmm. and and that if your team is losing you will say oh no this is norwich they'll 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 find a way to lose but uh, you know if you're winning you'll find a way to lose and so on but actually you know it just kind of evens itself out you imagine but it was Horrible lot luck, luck that the Heysel Stadium disaster meant yes. we we were denied our European glory or whatever. Even if it hadn't been glory, it would have been an experience. Yeah. And I had actually said to my friends, "I'm going to, you know, whenever we got an away match in Europe, I'm going to it. I'm going to really going to do that because the idea would again would have been just such a, yeah. a one-off thrill for to, 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 for Norwich to.
1: Being in Europe yeah there's still time there's there. still plenty of time for it to happen onwards and upwards
0: as my grandfather used to say from your lips to god's ears
1: <laughs> and as for your favorite player who would be your favorite player so far
0: oh well I have to say Darren Eadie because I've mm-hmm. just done <laughs> I've just seen him <laughs> here in the ground um over the years there, I mean there've been there've been so many I loved you know our super mac was was, mm-hmm. was wonderful um and at the moment, Max ahrens and uh, Todd campwell, I just love the oh. the fact that they 're both academy players and yeah. they 're young and they 've got energy and and
1: keeping them was huge wasn 't it, it i was
0: absolutely I was saying this just earlier today to someone um, you know in the summer, it looked as as if every club w- wanted a piece of them and, and they were going to go and, and it, it it seemed so unfair, particularly. To lose them, mm-hmm. you know. You mentioned Patrick Bamford, and you know, use others yeah. because they were academy. You know, they're the real thing. They they come from, they, you know, they they well, come Campbell's from just from Deerham, isn't he? Down the road. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and and obviously Pookie, especially especially two years ago. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing to have this flying fin. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Exactly. And um, of course,
0: like 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 many great strikers doesn't look like a striker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, oh, I remember the way. my friend Hugh saying that about Messi years ago. He said, when when it became apparent that Messi was going to be one of the all-time greats, he said, and the weird thing is, he just looks like someone who's come around to mend your dishwasher.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <And> that's exactly <laughs> the what... The guy mend. next door. No, he
0: doesn't look like a glamorous <laughs> footballer yeah. at
1: all. Yeah. And with Max Aaron's, I mean, he was attracting interest from Bayern Munich, wasn't yeah. he? Oh, How absolutely. big a deal was it He's to keep him? He's international class, isn't he? Yeah. It?
0: No question. It was really big to, to keep
1: him. I yeah. Think. I just want to talk about, um, you've talked a lot about your health, health issues and mental health, and we've all got mental health, haven't we? Mm. Where do you think social media stands in that? I know you recently took a break from Twitter with mm. your 13 million followers. Mm. Um, with sports people, one thing that I always find would be difficult for them is, say a player's had a bad game... He knows in his mm. mind or she knows that they've had a bad game they don't need to look on twitter oh, yeah. to, to get that negativity Absolutely. and and what what must that do for the mind as well I you could it, have lots of positive comments and then the one negative bam yeah yeah
0: you had to be robbie fowler or something to be able to take it well <laughs> experience <laughs> yeah it, um, i mean i always used to say this in the early days before social media that uh, that, that sportsmen have it sports people have it so much worse than actors because I would hear an actor moaning about some review they had. You know, They'd say a a disappointing performance or a wooden performance or an unconvincing performance and they'd be going around the place going, oh, did you see that review I had? And I'd say to them, look, uh, I know how upsetting it is to get bad reviews and I completely have have sympathy with you, but I want to remind you of two things. Uh, One is it was a theatre review. So it was buried in the arts pages, which are read by (laughs) 0.001% of the population. And two, look at the back page. The headline is England Shame or Manchester United Pathetic. There you go. They said you were slightly disappointed. <laughs> and they've, they've said of these sports people that they were a disgrace. Yeah. And they've absolutely slashed their characters and their ability and, and mocked and taunted them in ways that if that happened to you, what would you... So mm-hmm. just... Be grateful, you aren't a sports person. Yeah. Why
1: do sports people get that though, that be, treatment?
0: Well, it's one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking earlier, of course, that it's true of clubs and it's true of everything is that sports is so binary, really. Yes, you can draw, but it's a win or a loss. You know, uh, Americans have this thing, as you know, one and O and 12 and O and 12 and nine. And, yeah. you know, they, they, they can describe every team and every player by their list of successes and failures. One and zero oh means one one and lost one. You know, yeah. and 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 that's how everything is described. And so you can say that team is twelve and three for the season. You know, it's one twelve and lost yeah. three, or it's six and nine. You know, and immediately it, it, that's it. It's just a fact. You yeah. win or you lose, and it doesn't matter how how graceful that play was, or how good that move was, and how how staunch you were for ninety nine percent of the game. The fact is, it was one nil and it was one nil to the enemy mm-hmm. and so you lost and the word lost is such a strong word it's you know it's trump's word people are losers and and if you're a loser it's so it's there the l on the mm-hmm. forehead you know and it, it, whereas in the arts it's an opinion yes. oh, they didn't like it it yeah. wasn't that successful it was okay and of course some things can be a flop Uh, especially in terms of a play, it can close after a short time because the audience doesn't come. But still some people say, you know, a lot of people didn't like it. I thought it was great because you can't go to, uh, you know, you, you can't go to a team who's just lost five nil and said, I thought you played really well.
1: Well, this is the thing. <laughs> and you need winners and losers, especially for games like playoff finals, just thinking yes. back to twenty fifteen, oh, Norwich at Wembley. Were you at that game? I was
0: indeed. And, and
1: it's those kind of days that, that fans it's what it's all about, isn't, isn't it? it? Just so that was that was a great memory. And how do you see this season panning out? Obviously started fairly slowly it, but then we had Back, uh, three yeah. wins in a row that's
0: right yeah we've gone back to that thing that we do in the championship which is scoring the 90th minute. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> love a late goal it
0: is the last chance Norwich as ever um, yeah I mean it is a good side it was a good side last season and everybody said so you know I used to get fed up with hearing Gary Lineker say it's a shame because Norwich is such a good side I said, well, yes I know but I
1: yeah, we we had a win? lot of compliments last yeah. season didn't we given how it went yeah. a lot of compliments about style of play um, finally what What does Norwich City mean to you you obviously you travel around the world you keep coming back to the team keep coming back and watching Norwich and it will be great to see you back in the Mm. stadium with all the fans but what does the team mean to you as a whole well it's
0: it's just capable of giving one such such warm pleasure such a, a, a kind of crazy pride I mean it's it's silly pride because i've got nothing to do with their success, and yet it's one you feel and and it connects me with where I grew up as well, I mean in the same way that Norfolk will always be home to me um yes. um, um <laughs> because it just it just is and and crazy, quirky, and weird as Norfolk is, so beautiful. Norwich is to some extent <laughs> is Yay. but it's also beautiful and <laughs> um yeah, and I'm proud too that it is a club that uh so often does the right thing you know it it uh he, I, I like the fact that it is an outlier and it's uh, moves towards inclusivity and I like the fact that uh, it has always been a f- a place families can feel happy to come to. And I I like the atmosphere at Carrow Road, and I think our fans are great. And, you know, it's just, it enriches my life, I suppose. Good. That's really what, what, what I have to say about no, it. it's really just, good to hear.
1: You know. And you, you often hear of players that have played for Norwich and then retired, and they still come back with family, don't they? And, and settle and send their children to school here. So that's got yeah. to say a lot for Norwich as well, I agree. It? Stephen Fry, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast. It's Thank you so much for, for your time. Too. And Thank look forward, forward to us all being back at Absolutely. Carrow Road whenever it's allowed to happen. Come
0: on, you yellow
1: <laughs> On the ball city. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>